Lord be with you. And also with you. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. God's mercy endures forever. Friends, near and far, we welcome you to this Sunday service of ordered worship in the nave of Marsh Chapel, Boston University. The liturgy, homily, and music are offered in the praise of God for our gathered congregation here at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, for our New England radio audience through WBUR 90.9 FM, and for our internet listenership around the globe live at WBUR.org. We encourage your written or emailed responses, your prayerful and material support, and as the Spirit moves, your presence with us for worship. During Lent 2010, we are happily hosting a series of sermons on the theme of the atonement offered by our Boston University chaplains. Their messages will be recapitulated during the Good Friday service, a 50-year tradition here on April 2nd. During this academic year, Marsh Chapel has sought to optimize our administration and oversight of religious life at Boston University by improving communication and coordination through the office of the chapel director, by regularizing our monthly Religious Life Council meetings, and by expanding the membership of that council, by updating our standards and expectations document for religious life, and by filling openings in our roster of university chaplains, a team of eight not now finally and finally full. Thus, the 2010 University Chaplains Lenten Series is an outcome, reflection, and celebration of this more latent year-long project. Today, on our second Sunday in the series, we are proud and pleased to welcome our minister among students, Brother Lawrence Whitney, University Chaplain for Community Life to our pulpit. As we are able, let us stand in the praise of God.
Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways, and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. There are four movements of atonement, confession, repentance, mercy, forgiveness. As we reach for atonement, we are reminded that confidence in forgiveness must be balanced by confidence in our own sinfulness. To confess is to confess something. To repent is to repent of something. And to be forgiven is to be forgiven something. To receive mercy is to stand in the presence of God in spite of. Let us be seated and confess the sins that make God's mercy so necessary for us that we might come into God's presence.
We who come to worship God come to worship in spirit and truth. In our sinfulness, the truth is not in us. Having made confession, in repentance, the mercy of God grants us forgiveness, and we are restored to right relationship with God. Rest assured, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful, merciful, and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
please join me in saying verses from Psalm 27 with the antiphon. and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries escape the foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that I will seek him. To live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, you who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of mine enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. stand together for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel.
Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise you, Lord Christ. friends, here we are, once again, plodding through the liturgical season of Lent. The weather has decided this year to cooperate with the penitential feel of the Lenten season. Here in Boston, unseasonably warm temperatures have yielded a series of rainy, dreary days instead of the usual snow. Snow, of course, is too beautiful to be penitential. Although New York and Washington, D.C. may wish to point out that they have been experiencing penitential snowfall by sheer quantity. Now, it must be said, and at the outset, that natural occurrences and calamities, be they rainfall and snowstorms, or the earthquakes that rocked Haiti last month and Chile yesterday, are simply not a result of divine malign. 
In theology, like in statistics, correlation is not causation. The facts that rain and snow fall from the skies and that human beings are sinful do not mean that human sinfulness causes rain and snowstorms. The facts that the earth shifts and shakes and that human beings are sinful do not mean that human sinfulness causes earthquakes. Any more than rainfall, snowstorms, or earthquakes are excuses for human sinfulness. While natural events may provide an emotional canvas on which to paint our spiritual journey, it is both a spiritual and a theological mistake to confuse the painting for reality. Having set aside the temptation to equate natural events with divine intent, it is our task in considering the theme of atonement to investigate the equation of human sinfulness and divine grace. Temptation and addiction are two central figures in the drama of human sinfulness. Here at Marsh Chapel, we may be prone to an addiction to excellent preaching. This is why it is important for me to step into the pulpit occasionally to break the habit and remind everyone not to take for granted the homiletical extravaganza they are blessed to hear every other week. It is no easy task we have set ourselves to speak of atonement. Not that we at Marsh Chapel are prone to taking the easy road. Last summer, we tackled the theme of Darwin and faith, one of the greatest sources of tension in contemporary religious life. Now we delve into one of the greatest controversies in the history of Christian doctrine. How is it that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth almost 2,000 years ago affects a transformation from sin by grace in you and in me today and every day? Rehearsing the myriad theological treatments of this central question in Christian faith and life would consume our time together and almost certainly result in even more snoring than is already emanating from the congregation. Alas, I am afraid that the vast majority of atonement theologies would not touch on the lived experience of so many of us in the second decade of the 21st century. In our question of the atonement, we are not looking for the correlation between sin and Jesus, but for a causal relationship. We expect God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, to actually do something to or for us on account of our sinfulness. But I wonder if the way we pose the relationship is not the source of our trouble in understanding atonement in light of our lived experience. You see, in our posing the question, we expect something of God, that our sinfulness causes God to do something. Our gospel lesson today sets things up differently. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Paul, too, understands the discrepancy when in our reading from his letter to the Philippians he says, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, 
and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus and Paul explain is that we understand very well what God does for us. What we do not understand is ourselves and our sinfulness. We are not willing. Our minds are set on earthly things. There are four movements of atonement. Confession, repentance, mercy, forgiveness. Atonement theologies have historically been arguments about the relationships among these movements. But our lived experience and the breakdown in the atonement process that Jesus and Paul knew and that we live daily is not in the process itself, but before and between its movements. In my admittedly brief time in ministry, my own experience is that people are often in one of two places with regard to their lived experience. The first place many of us find ourselves is stuck in the starting gate. The atonement process never even gets going. As anyone who has ever moved from addiction to recovery can tell you, the first step in overcoming the addiction is admitting that you have a problem. Yes, dear friends, many of us are in denial, and I do not mean a river in Egypt. <laughs> Clearly, that for which I most need to atone is a predilection to bad puns. <laughs> the most obvious form of denial is the excuse. The most thoroughgoing excuse conceived in human history is the strict determinism of scientific materialism, resulting in the statement, the universe made me do it. Indeed, many of us cannot identify the exact cause of our failures of responsibility, but the sense that something beyond our control must have impinged upon our actions is prevalent. And the conclusion is that whatever it was that intervened should be held responsible for our failure. If you are wondering if you have ever actually had an experience that matches up with this abstract musing, just ask yourself this question. Have you ever found yourself saying, or at least thinking, oops, I forgot. Oops, I forgot to turn off the stove. Oops, I forgot to make my rent payment. Oops, I forgot to fill the car with gas. Really, it works with just about anything. Oops, I slept through class. Oops, I cheated on my girlfriend. Oops, I pressed the wrong button. The word oops serves a dual function in our experience. It signals that we know something is wrong and that we should not be held entirely responsible. After all, how can I possibly be expected to remember everything? I forgot to turn off the stove, but I remembered to lock the front door. I forgot to pay my rent, but I paid the cable and electricity bills. I slept through class, but I work so hard and for so many hours that I get exhausted. I cheated on my girlfriend, but I was drunk. <laughs> Another form of denial takes the form of, it's not that big a deal. This is the recognition that something is not quite right, but also the concomitant belief that the not quite rightness does not rise to the level of a real problem, certainly not to the level of sin. The no-big-deal form of denial is less verbal than the impingement form, 
mostly because we tend not to acknowledge such events since they are supposedly of negative, negligible importance. Nevertheless, there is a sense that things could have been better. I could have said that better. The sauce could use more oregano. The prelude would have been better if I had hit the F-sharp instead of the F-natural. Of course, Justin never hits a wrong note, so he wouldn't know. <laughs> As one great theologian, who is no stranger to this pulpit, has said, to be human is to be obligated. We are all responsible to fulfill all of our obligations. But alas, our obligations are so many and various that as to mutually exclude each other and overwhelm us. It is this condition that gives rise to the coping mechanism of denial. It is easier to simply say that fulfilling all of my obligations is impossible, so I cannot possibly be responsible. Such coping mechanisms are reinforced when they are successful in getting us out of the consequences for our failures. Unfortunately, this coping mechanism is not entirely true, and thus not entirely helpful. The fact of the matter is that we do feel our obligations and resulting responsibility deeply. Even if it is the case that our obligations overlap and conflict, we still must choose which we will fulfill responsibly, and we are still responsible for the ones we choose not to fulfill. We are responsible. We ourselves, not someone else, not the situation. We are responsible and we have failed in our responsibility, despite any intervening agents and situational complexity. We have failed. We have sinned. We are responsible and culpable and in need of repentance, mercy, and forgiveness. The other place that many of us find ourselves is stuck in the middle. Of course, the truth is that in some sense we are all stuck in the middle. It is always the case that we have sinned again before the sin we just confessed and repented of can be forgiven. But this is a different kind of being stuck in the middle. This is the kind of stuck in the middle that gets depicted in the 1998 dramatic film, What Dreams May Come. The character Annie, racked by guilt over the death of her husband Chris, commits suicide and is damned to hell. Not by God, but by the psychological pain that brought her to commit the act in the first place. The middle place, which for many is a hell of their own making, is marked by an overwhelming sense of guilt. The place of guilt is in many respects the opposite end of the pendulum swing from the place of denial. In guilt, it is not that our obligations are overwhelming and therefore we cannot be held responsible, but that our obligations are overwhelming and we are so responsible that we can never escape. There is not enough mercy in the world to overcome our failures. To be stuck in the middle is to be stuck constantly repeating Hagrid. I should not have said that. I should not have said that. I should not have said that. The problem here, once again, is not really a lack of confidence in God, but a lack of self-confidence that we are really worthy of forgiveness. God could not possibly forgive me, not because God is not capable, but because I am not worthy. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
The agony of the place of guilt is not only partly our own agony in the face of our own sinfulness. It is also the agony of God who longs for relationship, but we are unwilling. It is not God who counts us unworthy. It is we ourselves. How then might we bring the pendulum back to a balance point? And what might life look like once it is there? Let's take the second question first, shall we? We, in the spirit of Lent, seek to live in the space between denial and guilt. If we are to avoid denial, we must be honest, first and foremost with ourselves, about our own failures and thus our own sinfulness. And yet, to avoid extreme guilt, we must learn humility. We must humbly acknowledge our faults and enter a place of deep contrition out of which those we have faulted may offer forgiveness. So too, we must humbly recognize that the mercy of God is far greater than any sin we might possibly commit. When I was last on silent retreat with the community of Teze, Brother Sebastian led our daily reflections. He pointed out that the only possible way to withstand humiliation is to cultivate humility. Denial and guilt are both defense responses that attempt to fend off humiliation, but at the end of the day, neither are successful coping mechanisms. Brother Sebastian is correct. The only possible way to withstand humiliation is to cultivate humility. I often find myself saying to faculty and administrators that if students at Boston University learn nothing in the classroom, but during their time here learn to fail and recover gracefully, then we will have succeeded in our mission as an institution of higher education. To fail in our responsibilities is indeed inevitable in life. This inevitability does not absolve us of our responsibility. Only God can do that. But neither does it doom us to live guilt-wracked existences. We can, in fact, recover. The good news of Jesus Christ for us today is that there is more love in God than sin in us. But now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. From the perspective of denial and guilt, it may appear, as the saying goes, you just can't get there from here. In the Protestant traditions, there is a hesitation here because justification is by faith, not by works. Indeed, it is God who delivers mercy and offers forgiveness of sins, and yet it is we ourselves who must make the spiritual journey of Lent from denial and guilt to humility. This journey largely consists in ritual. There are two theories of ritual at Boston University. The first is that of the former Dean of Marsh Chapel, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, who points out that ritual is the cultivation of habits that allow us to live well 
in the world. The second is that of anthropology and religion professors, respectively, Rob Weller and Adam Seligman. For them, ritual is the creation of subjunctive, as-if spaces, in which our own brokenness and the world's brokenness can be held together as if they were whole. In neither perspective is ritual identified solely with religious rites, such as the one we are in the midst of now. Both understand that ritual consists in such mundane patterns of behavior as walking down the street and driving the car all the way up to the patterns of ceremony involved in religion and civil society. So, who is right? Is ritual a set of pattern behaviors that allow us to live well, or the creation of as-if spaces that help us cope with our own and the world's brokenness? The mistake would be in assuming that the two views are mutually exclusive, and the Lenten spiritual journey is the perfect case for demonstrating that the correct answer is a resounding both. On the one hand, the rituals of discipline in Lent really are better ways of living in the world. To reject temptations, begin to recover from addictions, and honestly and humbly recognize our own sinfulness makes us better able to see ourselves and our world as they truly are. Furthermore, the ritual movements from confession and repentance through mercy and forgiveness help us keep balance between denial and guilt and to cultivate humility. When we do so, we are better able to relate to friends, family, neighbors, the world, and above all, God. But in order to have that effect on our lives, ritual must first pull us out of our world and then stuff us right back in. The rituals of Lent pull us out of our normal daily existence and confront us with that fact that human sinfulness is world-destroying. According to the Christian narrative, it was human sinfulness that led to the death of Jesus on the cross. Not the sinfulness of some humans, but the sinfulness of all humanity. Jesus Christ, who in our ritual context was in the beginning with God and through whom God created the world, is destroyed by our sin. But just as surely as our sinfulness is world-destroying, so too is the grace of God world-founding. Sin is not the final answer, but is overcome by the victory of resurrection life, by the grace and mercy of God. And so the ritual places us back in the world in the middle, not stuck, but moving more fluidly through the process of confession, repentance, mercy, and forgiveness. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. In the Lenten journey, let us participate in the drama of atonement, the movements of confession, repentance, mercy, and forgiveness that we might become willing participants in the realm of justice and peace that resurrection ordains. To do so, we must in all humility reject the extremes of denial and guilt by allowing the ritual discipline of Lent to do its work. The ability to fail and recover gracefully is the greatest learning we might hope for. And then give thanks that the love and mercy of God indeed triumph over sin and death. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Amen. We have now come to the time in our service when we offer up the prayers and supplications of the people. Please stand, kneel, remain seated, or come to the communion rail as is custom in your tradition, as the choir leads us in the singing of Lead Me, Lord. have sent us out on a mysterious journey that is beautiful, wonderful, and joyous, but at times is confusing and painful. As we humankind continue to mourn the losses of our brothers and sisters in Haiti and now in Chile due to the natural disasters, help us to know that you are always with us on our journey through this life and that you will never leave us nor forsake us no matter what obstacles we must overcome on our way. We are wounded travelers on this journey. We have been wounded by broken relationships, unexpected losses, and feelings of unworthiness. Help each individual under the sound of my voice to know that no one is forgotten and help us to feel the abundance of your grace and the healing power 
of your love. O oh God, in our woundedness, when we have lost our way and have strayed from the path to which you have called us, have mercy on us. Stir our hearts, open our eyes and our ears, order our steps, so that we may find our way back to the path that our Lord Jesus Christ paved for us. The path of faithfulness, the path of humility, the path of compassion, the path of forgiveness, the path of hope, the path of unconditional love, the path of patience, the path of peace, the path of abundant life. God, have mercy on us. Be with us. Amen. And now, as, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. continue the Lenten journey in that middle space between denial and guilt, we pause to welcome those who may be with us for the first time or listening from afar for the first time. Please know how glad we are that you've joined us. You have joined us. Help us now in the sanctuary to get to know you better, if you will, by using with the congregation the red books, the pew rosters that are on the aisle. 
near the, uh, in the seats near the aisle and passing them back and forth so that we may greet one another following service by name. We are thankful for our ministry in many forms, including the marvelous, the stunningly beautiful representation of Judas Maccabeus last evening, and we are grateful for our musicians regularly, but also for what they brought to us last evening. Likewise, we would encourage you to peruse the printed materials in your bulletin for opportunities for ministry and service in the week to come. This afternoon, from 1 o'clock until 6 o'clock, Various groups, including religious life groups from the university, will be gathering in the GSU for a, a program related to Haiti relief, and we encourage you, if you are able, to participate there and then. Likewise, next Sunday, following uh, worship and uh, following our luncheon, there is one of our Marsh forums. This is a forum on three new books. Ecclesiastes 12 says that of the making of books, there is no end. Well, these are three new books that we would like to share with you following uh, our luncheon next Sunday. And as those among us, uh, as newcomers, I want to identify two retired ministerial members of the old Northern New York Conference, Reverend Dr. Alex Stewart, who is here, also served as an administrator at Boston University some years ago, and we welcome Alex. And likewise, the Reverend Dr. Robert V. Smith, retired former chaplain at Colgate University, is with us with his musician and organist wife, Joyce Irwin. I finally remember an evening in 1968 that Bob hosted for a then hardly known speaker, Julian Bond, in the Colgate Chapel, and I'm grateful for that evening and more grateful for his friendship and his presence among us today. With these thoughts and concerns before us, let us continue to worship together by presenting our tithes and offerings.
let us pray. Gracious and holy Trinity, we give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O God, from thee. So bless and multiply these gifts, that the giving may become receiving, and the receiving may become giving. In the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. friends, let us remember that life is short and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So let us step through the, the way of repentance. Confession, repentance, mercy, forgiveness, that we may be swift to love and love those whom the world has given us. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abide and remain with you now and always. Amen. <laughs>